This is episode 543 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. One of the key elements of salvation is something called sanctification. It's a strange word meaning to be separated unto God. It's the act of becoming personally more dedicated to God. Literally, it means living a life of holiness, which is the very reflection of the character of God. And sanctification is part of the process of salvation, whereby we become more like Christ and less like the world. Hence, after salvation, we are commanded not to walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, which is a perfect description of sanctification. And sanctification is a product of our will. It's the practical result of our obedience to Him. In fact, most of the commands given us after salvation are those we choose to do because of our love for Him. For example, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-21 says this, Implied, you rejoice always. You pray without ceasing. In everything you give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You do not quench the Spirit. You do not despise prophecies. You test all things. You hold fast to what is good. You abstain from every form of evil. Remember, God didn't save us to make us better. He saved us to make us new. And everything in our Christian life, all the promises, the the whole gambit of sanctification, all the blessings are activated by faith. That's right, faith. So join us today as we begin to discover the importance of faith and non-compromise with the world as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. In 2021, we started talking about how to have a, well, actually in 2020, how to have a deeper, intimate relationship with the Lord. And we talked about that, or the need for that, based on the world situation as we see it. We coined the phrase faith prepper, meaning what we need to do is prepare our faith for whatever the Lord's going to bring our way. We talked about him, the Lord bringing something our way corporately, maybe like in a nationally or something like that, but it also happens on an individual basis like what Tammy and Roberta are going through right now, to have the faith to be able to persevere during dark times. We looked back at a um, movement called the Higher Christian Life Movement, uh, the Keswick Movement from back in the late 1800s, post-Civil uh, War up to about World War I, to learn some truths from them. We talked about the Holy Spirit and who the Holy Spirit is. We dealt with issues about how to, how to have God speak to you through his word, how to have him, uh, you be able to recognize his voice, because if you can't recognize his voice, uh, it's a dark time. You know, we have all these promises, and we talked about how can we rise up and have this kind of faith or this higher Christian life or this understanding of who he is, and what's the key element that keeps us from doing that. So we've been going through this in a kind of a convolutant way with all these trails pointing to a crescendo uh, for several years now. And what brings us to where we're at right now, and that is the how questions. I began with this with you last week, and again, I sent out a, um, a teaching this week that just talked about the need for desire. And these how questions are really what separates us from Christianity as a mental construct versus something that we actually live out in the flesh. The scriptures tell us what to do. 
The Scriptures tell us why we should do it. The Scriptures tell us what will happen if we do or don't do it. The Scriptures tell us all these various promises, but what they often don't tell us, most of the time don't tell us, is how. How do we do these things? And the reason is simply the fact that most of the stuff the Scripture commands us to do, like the two verses we're going to look at in just a moment, are things that we should have a desire to do because we have a deep, loving, intimate relationship with the Lord, and so we're going to let His Spirit do these through us. But if you don't have a relationship with the Holy Spirit, I mean, He lives in you, but that doesn't mean you guys are friends. If you don't understand how He works, if you refuse to surrender your life or submit your life or become Oswald Chambers' statement, broken bread and poured out wine, then the Holy Spirit is not going to be able to move through you and help you fulfill these mandates and then empower the promises. And so therefore we live in this lukewarm kind of area where I used to be closer to the Lord than I am right now, but I'm okay how I am right now. I just got too many other things on my mind. I don't know about you, but I have no desire for a life like that. We looked at Romans chapter 12, verse 1 last week, and I used it just as an example of how we don't have the how questions answered. I'm going to read this to you. It begins with this. It's a command. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, and the reason why, by the mercies of God, that you, personal command, personal thing that you need to do, you present your bodies not your mind, not your will, not your heart, not your volition. Scripture in this particular passage says your body's a living sacrifice. Then it tells us how God views our sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Okay, so we preach that, we read that, we understand that, we pray about that. Lord, I want to present my body to you as a living sacrifice, and I know that you're going to make it holy by the imputed holiness of Christ. I know that you're going to accept me even though I've squandered most of my life doing the things that I want to do, and I know I should do it. It's my reasonable thing I should do based on the mercies of God. And you can develop a whole sermon. You could write an entire book. You could put together an entire course just based on that and never answer the question, how? That's my question. Lord, I want to present my body as a living sacrifice. I, I, don't, I don't know how. How do I do that? Is it like an Abraham Isaac thing? Do I need to build an altar out in the backyard and lay on top of it and hope you don't like the fire? If it's a living sacrifice, that means you want me like I am. I mean, you accept me and you're going to turn me into something holy. I mean, how do I do that? So I explore the word sacrifice and I explore the word living and I try to understand it doctrinally and theologically. And what he's looking for is me to surrender my life to him. He who desires to follow after me must pick by deny himself and pick up his own cross. Remember all that? Okay. Now I understand the concept better. I still don't know how. I'm clueless as to how this works. Do you know how it works? Do you know how everybody needs to surrender themselves as a living sacrifice? Do you know what that looks like in real life? Do you know somebody who lives that way? And you can go up to them and say, tell me what you did. Tell me how you did it. I mean, I mean, let me, you be my accountability partner. Let me call you every 15 minutes and, and you try to coach me through this and show me how to do it. I don't. What am I supposed to do? Do I'm do I 
live this out myself? Do I try to figure it out myself? And, and since I can't, and since sometimes I try and fail and try and fail, sometimes you'll have to agree with me, it's better to quit trying. And if I quit trying, then I don't fail. And if I don't fail, I don't feel bad. I don't feel guilty. Nobody likes to feel guilty. So I'm not going to try to grow spiritually. I'm just going to be satisfied where I am right now, right here in the lukewarm area where I'm not too hot, not too cold. I'm better than I was, but I'm certainly not where I should be, but I'm okay right here. But then I don't have to deal with this frustration without having the how questions answered. And then I feel strange being in this area, like a C-minus Christian, but I can learn to live with it. And weeks go into months, and months go into years, and years go into decades, and here we are. What do we do? How do we get these how questions answered? Which is what I began sharing with you last week, which I'm going to continue this week. Hopefully, we'll finish next week. If not, it'll be the week after so that you can have some understanding of how the Holy Spirit answers these questions for you. But first, first, I need to tell you that the promises of God are for everyone, but not everyone receives them. Do you understand? I look at the very next passage, Romans 12, 2, which tells us a little bit more of the how question, how I'm supposed to offer myself as a living sacrifice, but even it opens up more questions. And here's what it says. And you imply, do not be conformed to this world. But, contrast, what am I supposed to be? You're to be transformed. Is that something I do? Is that something the Holy Spirit does for me? And if the Holy Spirit does it for me, what part do I play in it? And and if am I transformed, am I transformed just once and boom, it's done? Or am I transformed and then I go back to how I was and maybe I'm transformed? I mean, how does that work? And to be trans, how in the world am I transformed, whatever that word means? Well, you're transformed by the renewing, not of your body, but of your mind. My mind. Well, that's funny. Because the first part of this passage says, I'm to present my body as a living sacrifice. This says that part of that process is I'm now transformed by the renewing of how I think, how I feel, my will, my volition, my personality, my mind. So if, I'm, if my mind is changed, then what's the benefit for me? What happens to me? What am I going to be able to do if I have, like Paul says, the mind of Christ? that I may be able to prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. If you remember, the question, the how question we were going to address last week was, how do I know God's will for my life? How do I know what he wants me to do in this particular situation? I'm faced with a crisis. I don't know what to do. I know what I want to do. I know what I think I should do. I know what I feel like doing, but I don't want to go by how I think and feel in my own fallen knowledge. Instead, I want you to direct my path, God. Where do I go? And we looked briefly at Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and then we go here and find out when this takes place, I'm able to prove exactly what God wants me to do in every single situation of my life. I don't know about you, but... um, I have found most of the mistakes, let me rephrase that, most of the hardships that I placed my family under, myself under, 
is when I have made decisions that I thought were right that found out they weren't. They seemed right to me. They seemed logical to me. It's kind of what I wanted to do. I convinced myself it was God's will. But if I had waited, which I hate doing, if I had waited, maybe I would have realized that he had a better plan, a more perfect plan, and part of the landmines that I stepped on and blew myself up with are ones that I placed there myself. Have you ever been there? How do I do this? How am I transformed by the renewing of my mind? And then we're going to, the meat of the message comes, goes back to Proverbs 3. And what does that even mean? I mean, what does it mean? And so as we've been teaching for 10 years now, we go back and we must figure out what the word says before we can even understand what it means. If you don't know what it says, you'll never understand what it means. And you can't always rely on our understanding of the English language because our language is fluid. Our language changes. Our language has different definitions for different time periods or different people groups. I mean, in someone 15 years ago used the word woke, what would that mean? Don't mean the same thing it means today, right? Now, woke is this whole, I don't even know what it is out there, this philosophy of life. No, woke means you're not asleep. No, no, it means something different now. And, you know, and so when we're reading the English, sometimes you want to go back and find out exactly what the Greek says. You don't have to have a seminary degree. You don't have to have a big library. You just have to have the internet. Click a couple buttons, and it lays it out for you. And so we take the word of God and we begin breaking down the words because I want to understand exactly what these words mean. Conformed, transformed, renewing, even world. What, what does that mean? Do not be conformed. You can look the word up on Blue Letter Bible or you can get something a little more extensive like the, uh, the Zondalus book that I gave everyone here and look it up. It's very simple to find. And the word conformed means this. It means to fashion alike, to look like, to be behaviorally or socially similar to something else or someone. I'm going to think like someone, act like someone. I'm going to move and, and live my day like somebody else. I want to be indistinguishable from them, to become shaped, formed, or molded into a certain pattern. Do not be like something. Do not be molded, conformed, shaped. Don't look like them. Don't act like them. Don't think like them. Don't have the same goals that they have. Don't do any of those things. Do not be conformed to what? To this world. Oh, world. Okay. Yeah, I understand that. That means cosmos. That's the evil world. That's the world system. So you don't want me to think like, the, like Hollywood. You don't want me to watch R-rated movies. You don't want me to, you know, to, to adopt the, the social mores of the culture out here. You don't want me to look like them and act like them and, and do the things that they do. You want me to be like light in darkness. Yes, except the word is not cosmos. It's ion. Not cosmos. It means something different. And in this word, the word world is a time. In other words, it means do not be like the people who live in the time in which you live yourself. Doesn't mean the evilness of the world necessarily. It just means the world. It means right now, do not be conformed to the world in which you live in on 
what is it, August 7th, 2020? Today is the 7th, right? 2020, don't be like those people. Well, what people? Well, don't be like the people you see on television. Don't be like the people that you see on the news. Don't be like the music you listen to or the friends that you have or or don't accept their worldview about anything. doesn't have to be all evil. It could also be good. Don't be like them. Don't be fashioned like them. Don't think like them. If they want money, don't be like that. If they view happiness on having a big house and big cars and all that, don't, don't, don't view it that way. If they say, no, you shouldn't have any kids or just one kid because you, know, you need to control your own life, don't be like that. Don't, don't be woke. Don't be anything. Do not be conformed to the world. I, I, that's... How do I do that? The world in which I live, the time in which I live, they, they, that, that philosophy permeates every television show I watch, every YouTube video I look at. Most of our young kids today spend most of their time on social media anyway. I go on social media and I post something there and, and I'll get a bunch of thumbs up or thumbs down. I get a bunch of thumbs down. And I want to take it down because I want people to like me. I want them to love me. I want to be just like them. I want to be accepted like them. Is pretty much what the rest of the New Testament says not to do. We're sojourners, we're pilgrims, we're peculiar people, we're light and darkness. Anyone who desires to be a friend of the world, remember that passage? Makes himself an enemy, an enemy of God. What do I do? How how can I not, trapped and conformed, to think like the world and make my success in the world? And my success means the world applauds me. How do I not live that way? Or live for like an audience of one, just God? How do I do that? Well, there's a contrast here. Something needs to happen, but I'm to be transformed. This is the Greek word where we get the English word metamorphosis from. Oh, so it's like I'm this earth-born, ugly little caterpillar, worm, fuzzy worm, and I, I go into this state of hibernation. I'm covered with this cocoon thing. And all of a sudden, I sit there, and some process takes place inside of that that I'm not even, I can't even see what's going on. And all of a sudden, that cocoon breaks open. And now I'm this totally different person. I'm beautiful, and I have wonderful wings, and this butterfly, and I'm no longer earthbound. And this transformation has taken place that's taken me from something that's kind of ugly and earthbound to something that is marvelous. That's the word here. It means to change one's form, to transfigure like Christ did on the mountain, to change completely into something new. Oh, oh, I like being born again. It doesn't say I'm going to be born better. It says I'm going to be born anew. The God doesn't say if I give my life to him, he's going to take all the good stuff in me and make it better, and the bad stuff in me, he'll kind of set it aside. But I really have enough worth and value in and of myself and my flesh that he's lucky to have me. No, it says that I must die. And once I die, then he will raise me up into a completely different person, transformed, transfigured, like in a metamorphosis situation. Okay. This is doctrine. This is theory. I understand what the word says, and I understand why it says that, but how? Do not be conformed to this world. Okay, that's a don't. Then what do I need to do? But be transformed how? By the renewing of my mind. Wow, so what does renewing mean? It's just like all those HG 
television shows my wife watches. That you go into this house that's falling apart and condemned, and these people come in, and they turn the house into something absolutely beautiful. You ever seen those shows? We're renewing it. In other words, there's a transformation that takes place for the better. It means to renew to a better quality, to renew qualitatively. It's a renovation or something to put it in a new or improved or like new condition. So my mind has to be changed. I can't think like I used to think. I can't assume what I've used to assume. I have to have some sort of transformation in the way I think because, and you may be differently, you may live differently, but whenever I sin, whenever I do something that I maybe I shouldn't do, that process always go through, goes through my mind first. It's not like I see something and my arm just reaches out and grabs it. There's a piece of candy, and I grab it. I'm not thinking about it. If, I don't steal candy, by the way, but if I did, you know, I'm thinking about it. There's that, oh, I'd like to have that. I wonder if nobody's looking. What's the ca- calculation of me getting caught? You know? And So then I reach out and choose to sin choose to do something I shouldn't do. There's a process that takes place in our mind. Do I want to be pleasing to myself? Do I want to be pleasing to the world? Or do I want to be pleasing to Christ? Do I really believe his promises are real? Do I really have the faith to trust him in all situations, even with my mind and my logic and the way I think says differently? There has to be some sort of qualitative renewal where I'm dealing not on a lower just base plateau, but now dealing with more self-actualization and and virtue and integrity kind of issues that has to take place in my mind in order to keep me from sinning. I want to offer myself as a living sacrifice. And the Bible says one of the ways you do that is not being conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the way I think. But it's so hard for that to happen because we go to heist, we go to school, which is governed by them, which they're the ones that tell us how to think. Then we go to college. Then we go to college and we're taught by them, their worldview, their idea of what success is. Then we go on television and we see portrayed in front of us examples and stories about them. And it all has to do with how I'm to find the perfect love and how I'm to do this and how I'm to make a lot of money, how I'm to be famous and the houses I'm supposed to have and the cars I'm supposed to drive and the parties that I go to, it's all about them setting the agenda. And so therefore my mind wants to have what they want And then I realize that I'm becoming a friend of the world and this living sacrifice is thrown out the window. I'm being conformed to them, only just a little more righteous and nothing works. How do I I change my mind? And if I do, God, if I really take that step and literally take my body, my flesh, my desires, my wants, and I give it to you as a living sacrifice, tell me what I get in return. What's worth my autonomy? And the passage finishes. What will happen? Well, you, as a personal promise to Steve McCraney, the personal promise to every one of you, put your name in there, that you, you may be able to prove. Oh, no, this is is where the faith enters in. This is where it gets really painful. Prove means that I have have outside verification, if we're looking at it from a science standpoint, outside verification that a hypothesis or a postulate is true. I'm making some assumption. I'm getting some 
empirical data. I'm looking at the data based on my assumption. I come to a firm conclusion that my assumption was true. My faith is based in the empirical data that I can prove. I can test, discern. I can judge what is right and commendable and what is not right and not commendable. I can accept as trustworthy what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That I can know for certain in my life what is good. His will is always morally excellent, even though I may not be. What is acceptable is well-pleasing to him. It's what gives him and me satisfaction and pleasure. And what is the perfect, it means complete, finished, having reached its intended goal or purpose, wanting nothing, will of God. The most blessed Christian on the planet is the one who says, I'm in the center of God's will. I know exactly what he wants me to do. I know exactly what he's called me to do. I know exactly where I'm at is where I should be, and therefore I'm living and acting according to the impulses of the spirit that he gives me. Nothing, nothing is greater than that. And if you've ever talked to someone who's in that situation or has been in that situation, they will tell you every single time, it was the greatest spiritual experience I ever had in my life. Well, why didn't it continue? I just, I stepped away. I snatched God's will off me and put my own will back on. I just decided I didn't want to live that way anymore. Hence, up and down and up and down and up and down. Have you ever been there? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you, your jobs, present your, not somebody else's, your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Something the Holy Spirit does, something that we cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind into something better than it was. And when that happens, that you will know for certain good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. That's a promise. And here's what happens when it takes place. When our mind is renewed, when we simply choose to live by faith and not what we see, think, or feel. That everything that I think is corrupted by me. It's corrupted by the culture in which I live. Before I got saved, I was 27 when I came to faith in Jesus Christ, and I had learned how to survive by my own wits in this world. I was married. I had a child. There was a lot of sin in my life, and I realized that I could lie. I could tell a convincing tale. I could blame somebody else. I could gaslight. I could project. I could do anything I wanted to do to somehow get the spotlight of inspection off me and on somebody else. That uh, I called my own shots. I made my own decisions. I mean, it was just the way a lost person lives in the culture in which we have. Every one of us developed those traits that we look out for number one, we're going to see how it impacts me first. You know, if there's an altruistic gift I'm supposed to give, I want to figure out whether I can afford it or not. What's my benefit out of it? I mean, that's the way lost people live. And then all of a sudden we get saved. The Holy Spirit comes to live within us. The new man is born and a battle takes place between me living by the old man, as Paul talks about, or living according to the new man that's placed in me by the Holy Spirit. 
And the things that I don't want to do, I do. And the things that I want to do, I don't do. Why is this taking place in me? There's this battle going on of who will have control. Am I going to trust God's word for what it says? Or am I going to filter it through what I know to be true? What I think, what I see, what I feel, what I think is going to work, which worked for me in the past. It'll work for me now. It'll probably work for me tomorrow. Am I willing to, to trust him with everything or just trust him with the stuff that doesn't really affect me in the here and now? I have complete faith that I'm going to go to heaven when I die. I have complete faith in John 14 and 15, where he says that he's uh, going to prepare a place for me and he'll come and receive me unto himself, that where I am, he, uh, where he is, I will be also. I have undeniably a faith that Roberta soon is going to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, rejoicing. You have faith to trust him with your finances? Mm. No. You have faith to trust him with the relationship you're in right now? But the scripture says that it's an unhealthy relationship. You're unequally yoked. You should have nothing to do with that person. I know, but I think I can change them. I think I can make them better. My heart is so tied up in this. Do you have faith to trust me with this and this and this and the here and now? No, but I do have faith to trust you in the internal, which really matters, but the stuff in the great scheme of things that doesn't matter, I struggle. Why? Because we're still number one. We're still Lord of our own lives. It's faith. You know, do you have the faith to trust him or what you think is going to happen? And when you trust him, this transformation takes place. This renewal takes place in your mind as you begin to realize there is a higher authority than me. And that higher authority is him. And I know that and confess that, but often we don't live that way. And every one of the promises of God, listen carefully, are activated by faith. God makes a promise, but it doesn't become real to you until you believe it. It, it, It's like it belongs to someone else out there and also belongs to you, but I'm not really interested in that. No, you don't understand. Your father set this banquet. He's got a seat for you. There's a little place card right there, and that's for you. He's got unbelievable treasures for you. Other people are eating. You can eat too, but until I have faith to believe that that's really taking place, I sit in the gutter and starve. And then someone looks at me and goes, you know, you're a child of the king. I mean, there's this meal over here. He's performed He's invited you to come. Why don't you go eat? No, I I just don't believe that's true. I don't think it's going to happen. I haven't incorporated in my life. This amazing promise that God gives us are all activated by faith. And if we don't believe them, they're nothing more than simple words. Jesus said that I have come to give them life and to give them life more abundantly. I don't believe that, then you're not going to have an abundant life. I don't think that's really for me, then it's not going to happen to you. It'll happen to this person and that person and that person. Everyone who activates these promises in their own life by faith receives them by faith, but otherwise we're stuck in no man's land simply struggling. This is why it's so important to have a handle on faith before we even understand the how question. Because God can tell you how, but if you don't believe it's from him, and don't have the faith to put it into practice, the words mean nothing. They're just words. And then all of a sudden, the Christian life is not a life of power and love and 
grace and mercy, but the Christian life is a life of frustration. It's a life of trying and failing. It's a life that I don't want to tell anybody else about. So therefore, since I've got nothing really excited about this except some promise of heaven, I'm not going to share my faith with anybody. And here we are, Church of Jesus Christ in America today. What the Bible says about faith. Classic passages in Hebrews chapter 11. You know these. It says, now faith, faith is the substance of things hoped for, foundation of things hoped for, confident expectation, and the, oh, I love this word, evidence of things not seen. Evidence of things not seen. What is evidence? Well, uh, if I'm going to court and I have a judge, it's an impartial judge, assuming you can find one, it's an impartial judge, and so I'm going to go to court and uh, I have got to prove my case. And so he's not going to believe my words because my words are just words. And this other guy over here, he's sharing his words. And so he believes whoever presents facts, evidence. So here's the evidence that I have, these third-party documents, these facts that verify what I'm saying is true. Faith is the evidence specifically of things you can't see. Wow. Um, Why would he put that in there? He's God. Evidence, not of things that you don't know, or evidence of things that you don't believe, or evidence of things that you haven't heard about, but evidence of things that you can't see, things not seen. Because we always say seeing is believing. And I'm like Thomas, I'm not going to believe the Lord was here unless I see him and put my touch him and put my finger here and my hand here. I have to verify it with my fallen senses. And most of our senses, what makes us believe the most is what we see. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So what is faith? Believing without having to see. Man, that's so hard. Yeah, unless you have an intimate relationship with the one that you place your faith in. The word for evidence means conviction, the realized truth or validity of something. It doesn't talk about tangible evidence in the Greek. It means that you know, you know, you are convinced, you absolutely have no doubt because the, you have realized the truth or the validity of things that you don't even have to see because my faith is based, based in him. And all he has to do is say the word, and I believe. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. We're getting ready to look at some promises. Uh, We're going to ask questions about how to incorporate those in our life. But if you don't believe, it's not going to happen. If you don't have faith, then everything we're going to show you is going to have no effect at you at all. Hey, I know that maybe works for other people, but it's really not going to work for me because I don't believe. God will lay out some promises, like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. He will direct your paths. And that's appropriated to you by faith. There's conditions that need to be met, and those conditions can never be met unless you have faith to meet them. And once you have those conditions met, you have to believe the promise, because if you don't believe the promise, nothing's going to happen. It's really that simple. It's faith not just in his promise, 
But the faith is in the character of the one making the promise. God himself says he is trustworthy. He's full of love and grace and mercy. He gives you the Holy Spirit. He's a good father. So why would we not believe in him? To not believe his promises is to accuse him of being a liar or showing favoritism or partiality, which is a terrible thing to say about a gracious God, is it not? Bible says that one of the reasons that one of the ways that we please him is we have to believe that he is who he says he is. These are not just doctrinal questions. Five verses later, we went into this passage, which is one of my favorite in uh, Hebrews 11 in this roll call of faith. And it says this, but without faith, it is really hard. No. The word is impossible. It means categorically cannot be done under any circumstances, period. Without faith, you cannot please God. There's nothing in you, no amount of good works, no amount of money you give to church, no amount of nice things that you do or, or hope help old ladies cross the street or take in stray animals. There's nothing you can do to please God without faith because everything about him is energized by faith. If by, with faith, it is impossible. The word means, look it up yourself, not capable of occurring under any circumstances, no matter how hard you try or no matter how well-intentioned you are. You must have faith. It's impossible to please him. Impossible. Why? Well, why so hard? Here's what the Holy Spirit says. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. I love that phrase. He that comes to God must believe that he is. It doesn't say that he exists. It doesn't say that, you know, to believe, that, they believe in a God and Satan will go, I believe in God. It doesn't say that. This is the picture of God as the ever-present one. It's like a New Testament picture of God revealing himself to Moses in the burning bush. Who do I say that I, who do I tell the people that you are? You tell them the I'm the ever-present God, I'm the I am that I am. I'm the one that's always with you. I'm not the God back then, I'm not the God tomorrow, I'm the God that is always with you. Always with you. Stay closer than a brother, I'm that other helper Jesus talked about. And as God, that you must believe that He is a rewarder of those who, and here's the qualifier. Diligently seek him. So um, when God's talking about faith, believing these promises, that I have to believe that God really cares about me, that he exists in me, that he's the ever-present one. He's not just a God of an Old Testament or a God of some, some old 2,000-year-old book. He's not a God of somebody else. He is. He is. He's the same God back then that he is now, the I am that I am is this exact same phrase in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, where it says, trust in the Lord. That word for Lord there means the ever-present one, the I am that I am. So what happens if I don't have faith? I mean, what happens if my faith falters? What happens if I choose not to have faith? Maybe have a little faith thing. Maybe I'll have enough faith that I'll ask God to energize what I want to do. I mean, after all, God gave me a mind. He expects me to use it. 
God gave me wisdom, and so therefore my wisdom is best. I know what I want to do, and I convince myself that that's God's will too. What if I don't have faith? What about every single promise in Scripture that is laid out for me? What happens to those promises if I don't have faith? Well, the promises remain true. God is always true, but you don't experience them. You don't get the benefit from them. They don't become true and real to you. And this is where I have struggled and failed for so many years in my Christian walk. I see this ideal. I see the promises out there. I see what God wants and what he's promised. And then he simply says, to receive that, just come. Just come on my terms. Come and receive. Come and believe. And they are yours. Now, me coming may mean that I have to give up something over here, or like in the Proverbs 3 passages, that I have to trust in the Lord with all my heart, and then the hard part is not lean on my own understanding, then in all my ways acknowledge him, and then the promise is mine. But the fact is, if I don't have faith, then that promise that other people have received, the promise that is available for me, has always been available for me, is elusive because I refuse to believe and have faith. They are energized. They are appropriated just like salvation by faith. If you remember 1 Corinthians 1.30, passage that spawned the whole leaving Laodicea book was the fact that in Christ Jesus, he has become for us the wisdom of God and the redemption and sanctification. Do you remember that? It all comes in him, appropriated by faith. Well, are you just making this up, or is it really true that uh, God's promises only come to those who believe? And the answer is yes. Greatest promise you ever fulfilled was your salvation. Do you remember? And you know what it took? Faith. God had provided everything. God did all the heavy lifting. God died. God revealed himself to you. God called you into a relationship. You, when you exercise your faith and conversion and repentance, God energizes you. He regenerates you. He's going to continue the process of sanctification. He'll glorify you. He's prepared a place in heaven for you. God did everything, and all you had to do was trust and receive by faith. By faith. Otherwise, nothing. If, if I had Satan up here, and I asked Satan the same questions that the pastor would ask you when you were coming to faith in Christ. Hey, do you, uh, do you do bad things? Are you a sinner? Yes. Yes. Father of lies over here. Do you, uh, do you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God? I believe Satan knows. Do you believe he died on the cross, was buried, raised on the third day, ascended up to heaven? Do you believe he's coming again in glory? Yes. Do you believe? Yes. Will I have faith and surrender myself? to the Lordship of Christ, to believe that he is sovereign over everything, including my flesh, and believe and trust him like that? Yes. Will you? No. The difference for salvation is appropriated by faith. Look what it says in James chapter 1, talking about wisdom, but the principle here applies to almost everything. God gives a promise, and then we either believe the promise or we don't. If we believe the promise, it becomes true. If we don't believe the promise, it's still true, but we never appropriate it into our lives. 
We don't get any of the benefits from it. If any of you lacks wisdom, this is an if-then passage. If any of you lacks wisdom, well, what do I do? Well, then ask God. Okay. Um, Lord, I, I don't have wisdom. I don't know what to do about this job situation, my marriage situation. I don't know how to do this financial crisis I'm facing right now. I've got a medical problem here. You know, I've, got, I've got something I feel like I should do, but I'm afraid to do it. Or Lord, I, I don't know what to do, where to go. I need direction in my life right now that we're talking about, the how questions. I need your wisdom. You promised that in Christ Jesus, he became for me the wisdom of God. I don't feel it. I need it appropriated. What do I need to do? Lord, I need wisdom. Good. If you need wisdom, ask me. Okay. I'll ask you, Lord, would you give me your wisdom? Are are you trustworthy? Will you do that? Well, look what he says here. It's a description of God. God says, yes, he'll give to all liberally and without reproach. And so all I need to ask, and it will be given to me. Do I believe that? Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll do that. Are there any qualifiers here? Are there any fine print? Yeah, there is. But, but, here's the qualifier. Let him ask in faith. Oh, oh, there it is again. There it is again. Everywhere I turn, it's, it's always this faith thing that, that I need wisdom. You're a good God. You will give wisdom to all with, without reproach, liberally, whatever we need. Matter of fact, you've already given me the wisdom because the Holy Spirit lives in me and in the Holy Spirit as a helper, as the helper in John 15 with Christ, all of a, or John 14, all of a sudden now I have the wisdom of Christ living in me, but for some reason I can't tap into it. And the reason why the door is locked is because of the qualifier. And the qualifier says, I must ask in faith. I I don't know what that means. Can you define that for me? Sure, sure. With no doubting. Oh, oh, so, oh. So this is more than just consultation. It's more than me asking you your opinion, God, that I'm choosing whether I'll take it or not. What you're basically saying that if I want the wisdom of God, I have to ask in faith, and if I don't doubt that it will be given to me. Well, what if I do doubt? What if, I, what if I'm not committed? What if I, I don't want to exercise that faith? I, want, I just want to know your opinion. I've asked my boss. I've gone on the internet. I've asked my Facebook friends. I've... Uh, you know, I've contacted my guru. They've all given me the opinion of what I need to do. God, can you give me your opinion too so I can add it to the mix and go ahead and make my decision? But if I doubt, the description is, I'm like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. There's no anchor in my life. There's nothing secure in my life. My life is just beat around by feelings and impressions and what I want and don't want and circumstances. I I can't even hear God's voice. And so I'm really of no good at all. I'm just being dashed around. And then the Lord says that that man who's like that, who doubts, let him not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Why? For he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Well, what makes him not double-minded And what makes him firm and secure and not unstable? Faith. Faith. Faith in the undeniable character and power of God. Faith in his word. Faith in his truth. Faith in his fidelity. Faith in him. 
when I believe by faith, then all of a sudden, all the other options mean nothing because they're compared to the finite standard, which is God himself, and everything changes. We're um, not even going to even get a chance to look at Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 today. It's about as far as we can go. But I want to just drive this one point home, that everything we're going to discover about the how questions, about the character and personality of God, everything that we're going to talk about, this higher Christian life, this abundant life, everything is already yours, already yours. You don't have to climb to some mountain and make some pilgrimage somewhere to somehow become worthy of God's grace and mercy. He has already given himself in the person of the Holy Spirit living in you. There's nothing you lack. Colossians chapter 2 says that we are complete in him. But that doesn't mean that everything God has given us that we're able to use or it's changing our life because it is activated or incorporated or it's like the doors are open by the locks are open by the key of faith. Faith. And if that's true, then there's really no excuse. If I already have everything he wants to give me, there's no excuse for me or for you, for not living an over-the-top, abundant kind of life in Christ, that no matter what circumstances come our way, we persevere because God has walked before us. And every promise we're going to talk about in Scripture, every how question that is being asked here, the answer to that is incorporated into your life only by faith. And if you say no, I don't believe, or I do believe, but I'm not going to act on that belief. That's the same thing as unbelief. Then all of a sudden, we're still stuck in the same situations we are because we don't believe him. I really can't emphasize that enough, that before we move on, we have to realize that all of it is by faith. Amen? Let me pray.